Welcome to another episode of the Legal Marketing Studio, the biweekly podcast examining branding, strategy, content, and technology in legal marketing. We are devoted to exploring successful initiatives, innovative campaigns, promising technologies, or effective proven strategies for developing new business at law firms from the largest international firm to the solo attorney. The podcast is a production of Picture More Business, a corporate photography studio with a core focus on the legal industry, providing the full gamut of photography services for law firms. I'm Michael Meyer, the host of the Legal Marketing Studio. In this episode, I'm speaking with attorney Kenneth Rochbaum, partner at Barton LLP and adjunct professor at Fordham Law School. As an attorney at Barton, Ken is focused on the areas of privacy, cybersecurity, and e-discovery, counseling clients in regards to information governance, regulatory compliance, the interface of e-commerce, legal, and regulatory liabilities in areas such as cybersecurity and breach response. He has vast experience in preparation of protocols for compliance with data protection and privacy laws in the U.S. and other countries, conduct of information security and data breach response assessments, investigations, and remediation initiatives, and policies for social media, legal, and regulatory compliance. And he serves as special e-discovery counsel for complex litigation and in matters in which electronic evidence from beyond the U.S. is required. At Fordham, he teaches a course in laws and regulations affecting electronic information, including detailed analysis of notions of privacy, the evolution of cybersecurity provisions and laws and regulations, social media in the workplace, ethics in electronic discovery, and uses of digital information as evidence. Ken, welcome to the Legal Marketing Studio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with an overview of your career a little bit, because I know you've had a sort of winding career. And I wonder if you might, you know, when you started your career, when you were first getting out of law school, what did you imagine, you know, if, if there was a metaphor to describe how you imagined your career would go, you know, what might that metaphor be? Well, the metaphor might be, I guess, climbing a very gnarly uh, mountain ridge. Um, I started out as a trial lawyer. I was an assistant district attorney in, in Brooklyn, uh, which was fabulous way to find my way around the courtroom. I was trying cases within two weeks of graduation, um, which was under a, a program for New York State where public defenders, the Legal Aid Society, and uh, assistant district attorneys could try cases before they were admitted to the bar, even before they found out they passed the bar. So that was how I learned how to try a case. And I was a trial lawyer consistently, uh, took dozens of verdicts, started even many more trials than that, did mediations and arbitrations. And I thought my career was going to stay in litigation. So at this point, having not necessarily followed the path you might have thought. You know, is there a new metaphor that, that might describe what your career has actually been? I think, to use a bit of a hackneyed phrase, it's kind of ado- adopt to the times and go with the flow. Uh, what I found in the recession was that litigation had dropped precipitously, and it has still stayed in a very low level around the country. It's expensive. It's risky. People don't want to take the chance. The need for trial lawyers, particularly, other than criminal medical malpractice and personal injury, is significantly down. I'll still try cases, but the need for it is nowhere near as great as it was before. But around the late 90s, I saw a need for assistance in various areas of compliance. So I started to move into that area. I took my litigation skills, my courtroom skills, and started doing uh, 
educational rounds at hospitals for my hospital clients on a wide variety of issues having nothing to do with the litigation I was involved in or very little to do with it. Uh, I was defending malpractice cases at the time. But because I had an interest in these other areas that were, were evolving, uh, the hospital administrators asked me to come in and do teaching rounds at the hospitals on things like information gathering and record keeping. Uh, we were having difficulty in some of those hospitals with regard to the use of the records as a foundation for defending a professional disciplinary action, a state investigation or litigation, because doctors were just not focusing on the need to keep good records. It was not what they felt at the time, this is the mid-90s, as their core competency. So having done that, some of the hospital executives said, well, wow, Ken's pretty good at this. Let's have him do a smaller series of what were called uh, in-service lectures to the different departments of the different hospitals. And I then started to develop this interest in an expertise in compliance. Something that seems that that brings up to me is that the idea of the role of the attorney mm-hmm. changes a little bit. And, and something in our in our, our background conversation we'd, we'd had on the phone, you had talked about how it it's changed what it means to be a good lawyer. Could you talk a bit about how that shift from sort of a litigation mindset to a more uh, a mindset of uh, preventing problems before they occur or mitigating problems before they occur. That's been, to a great extent, I think the largest change in, in my practice. I'm no longer strictly a lawyer who is called in when there is, when a problem has already occurred and it's crisis mode. Uh, a lot of what I do is in is in preventive mode, compliance with uh, changing technology, regulations, laws, and and requirements. Trying to keep my clients out of litigation. You know, being a litigator for so many years, I know how expensive and time consuming and distracting that is. So I do a lot of training on uh, compliance with these various practices as well as regulations and laws to hopefully keep the client out of trouble. It's good business for me because if uh, it's no longer one and done. It's not, oh, great, you won this trial. You got us a great settlement. Thank you very much. We'll see you the next time. Now it's, okay, we have these new problems coming up. You're the guy that helped us last time. Uh, you have a feel for our business now. You know what our business is about. You know what our concerns are about. Can you come in and help us with this new problem? You know, we're going to talk about tech in a minute because, you know, you're very much into cybersecurity mm-hmm. and cyber issues. But something that your answer suggests to me is that a lot of the issues, it's sort of a moving goalpost. You know, you fix a problem, but there's there's new problems, and these problems are constantly arising because the technology and is changing so quickly. To what extent is your value in being able to look forward and see the problems coming down the road uh, and help your clients steer around them. The landscape is shifting, and it is shifting almost on a daily basis. Uh, I tell my students at Fordham, uh, my course is entitled uh, E-Law, like e-discovery, E-Law, Information Safeguards and Electronic Evidence Challenges. And in my syllabus, I say, I say I reserve the right to change the syllabus during the semester because of new case law, 
new regulations or uh, issuance of new best practices. Part of the problem with the relationship between law and technology is it's more like the dog chasing its tail. Uh, Technology will always advance faster than the law does. Case law responds faster than legislation, but case law is limited to certain factual situations, even certain geographical areas. Uh, The law in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals uh, area is not the same thing as the law in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Second Circuit is the New York area. The Ninth is California. Well, I want to segue here to the marketing aspect, uh, to how do you market that value that you provide to your clients. What are some of the things that you're doing to help your clients understand the value that you bring um, as someone who understands all of these things coming down the road and who's flexible enough to see that what worked yesterday might not work tomorrow? Well, I try to keep them up to date on changes in the law that affect them. Uh, If there is a new case, if there is a new regulation, and I think it may uh, affect them both as a matter of business or as a matter of potential legal exposure, I I want them to know about it. it. It's a difficult area because of the way it's all shifting. You know, when I graduated law school, you pretty much knew what criminal law was because it was in the case law. It changed, sure. There were new cases from the Court of Appeals in New York uh, that affected, say, um, searches and seizures, that affected the voluntariness of a statement, that affected the tests for admissibility of scientific evidence. But those changes took place over time. They weren't quite quite so immediate. Now, in, the, in electronic information, particularly in healthcare and financial services, and to a great extent for international companies, we don't know necessarily what the rules of the road are from day to day. So by amassing all of this information that I get on a regular basis, I can, I'm in a position to give my clients advice on where I think the law is going. You know, Wayne Gretzky had a wonderful uh, statement uh, where someone asked him how he was able to score so many goals. He said, I don't skate to where the puck is. I skate to where the puck will be. And I try to do that with my clients. Here's where I think the Federal Trade Commission will be going. Here's, therefore, what I think you should do to be prepared for that. Here's where I think the Office for Civil Rights of Health and Human Services is going. That's the entity that enforces the HIPAA privacy and security uh, regulations. This is where I think they are going based on what I have seen in the last four settlement reports of proceedings they have brought. There are things that have been in those proceedings that are not in the black and white regulations. But now I'm thinking like a regulator. I'm thinking what will they look at and if they if they audit my client's systems, what will be a, a red flag for them? Let's take care of that now. Because right? I can't tell any client they're not going to be audited. I can't tell them they're not going to be sued. But what I have to do to your point about adding value is tie that into the way they do business. All right, because and in this I, I tell tell all my clients the best regulations are useless if nobody will follow them. And they're even worse than useless. Because if you have put something in written documents, your own policies and procedures that you don't follow, 
you've set a standard for yourself that you're not meeting. And that's worse than not meeting the legal standard. The regulator will pick up on that in a flash. You didn't even meet your own standard? Well, clearly then you didn't meet the law. And therefore, we're going to increase your penalty by X amount. So I always try to incorporate the business people in anything I'm doing with compliance. Someone once said to me that he felt compliance uh, has another name. It's the business prevention department. And I was initially shocked, and I took that very much, very much to heart. And now when I talk to clients, particularly in this era of data breaches, almost on a daily basis, like 500 million Yahoo subscribers were breached. We heard this yesterday, and the breach took place in 2000, in, in, in 2014. So what I'm telling clients, and I tell this to the young developers in this, who I meet in the meetups, I speak at, at meetups often, and I'll say to them, security is a business imperative, all right? Your customer base is going to look at you not just for what you're providing, but how are you being a good steward of the information that you're giving them, that, you're, that you are giving to them? How will you take care of it? Similarly, for law firms and also for the security consultancies, there are audits that take place. Banks, in particular, and hospital systems are now well known for auditing their third parties. Cloud providers are in the same situation, and I run some of those audits. Uh, so turn it around a little bit. If you're not secure, you won't pass the audit. If you don't pass the audit, you're not going to get the business. Or if you had the business already, and I've seen this with some of my law firm clients, you're at risk of losing it if your security is not in place. So this is not just a matter of legal compliance. Compliance is good business. So just back to some of the, you know, this marketing value, what are some of the tools that you're using to, to communicate this to, to your clients or potential clients? I know you mentioned uh, these meetup groups where you're speaking to, to young developers. Uh, what are some other tools you're using? Well, I speak at several conferences, uh, all literally all over the world, throughout the year. I've spoken in um, Argentina, Ireland, um, Canada a, a few times now, the United Kingdom, Belgium, Germany, France, Italy, Japan, Korea, because business is now interconnected on an international scale. Businesses in these countries need to know about U.S. regulations so they don't get in trouble here and so they can attract more business here uh, and, and vice versa. I uh, write regularly for the firm's privacy and cybersecurity blog. Um, I try to do it at least once a week. Don't always get to it because of the press of business. So uh, that blog then gets uploaded to my uh, LinkedIn account. I've got over a thousand uh, connections on LinkedIn. That in turn goes to my Twitter feed. Uh, I also will contribute to textbooks and articles. I'm a prolific writer. I like to write. been a writer for most of my career, and I also uh, do a lot of non-legal writing. So, and it, it's, it's a critical point. And when we talk about training for young lawyers later, it's a point I want to, to emphasize. Because if you don't write well, you're going to have a problem attracting new business. You're going to have a problem making an impression on senior people in your legal department or, or your firm. So I, I do a lot of writing, a lot of speaking, and uh, those are 
pretty much the, the way I've I've been marketing. I try to get to a variety of different organizations. There are some. I'm I'm the division chair for the disputes division of the. ABA International Law Section. So we have uh, 25,000 members, 40% of whom are from outside the U.S. So I get to a global market that way. I've uh, spoken to the local bar associations uh, in a number of cities, and I try to make sure that I do a a variety of different industry verticals. I did a presentation for the New Jersey CPA Society this week on uh, cybersecurity for CPAs. Uh, I've spoken to real estate developers. Now, you might not think real estate developers have a cybersecurity interest, but uh, when you came into this building this morning, you had to give in your driver's license, okay? Now, that was plugged into a database somewhere. Who knows how secure that is, all right? Also, if you are renting a space like the suite we have in this law firm, Bank account information had to be given over, sometimes social security numbers. If commercial tenants feel that their landlord is not taking good care of their information and is not, and perhaps even is not taking care of the lines that are coming in for their computers and their phones, they may go elsewhere. Now, for your existing clients, do you push these out on a one to one level or do you, you know, when a something like this Yahoo breach comes up, which points out a potential risk for an existing client. Would you reach out on a one-to-one level, or are you pushing it out primarily through your social media feeds in the blog? Something like the Yahoo breach will go out through social media. If it's a change in law that I think affects numerous clients of the firm, we'll do what's called a client alert. When the EU-US safe harbor program was invalidated last October, we had a number of clients who were registered with that program. program was, was gone in a day. Uh, so they were going to call us and say, what do we do? What do we do? So we got ahead of the curve and did a client alert on uh, what the court decision that invalidated the safe harbor program meant, what you should do in the short term, what you should do in the longer term. Uh, here's how we can help you with both aspects uh, of it. Uh, a lot of it was talking people in off the ledge. Uh, you know, this is not the end of the world. You don't have to stop sending data to Europe or receiving data from Europe tomorrow. Here's how the time frame will look. And that's the counseling aspect of, of what we do. So you'd mentioned training young lawyers and that we would get to that. And now we're going to get to that. So your your class isn't specifically about business of law. It's about e-law. Right. How important is it for you to feel like you're teaching the attorneys not just the specifics of the law, but, you know, how to have the flexibility to adapt to the, the, the landscape as it's changing, you know, as you said, on a day-to-day level? Well, that's one of the reasons why students have said to me in feedback that they find my class so valuable. The law is largely paper-based, all right? Most of the cases that the students read in law school is still taught largely by cases are about paper documents. They're about, um, and there really is such a thing as an electronic document. That was not, that was not a slip up. There were paper doc, there's documents and data in, in electronic discovery. And we, we do make that, make that distinction. But I tell them that they're going to need to adapt their careers as things change. When I graduated school, we thought that we could always make a living on things like, uh, in addition to trials, uh, divorces, wills, 
residential house closings, apartment closings. Uh, that stuff is commoditized now. You can find kits to do all those things at Staples. People who were doing just that, even bankruptcy for that matter, the bankrupt, personal bankruptcy laws have changed so dramatically that the bankruptcy practices are now drying up if they don't change to the parts of bankruptcy that still exist. So you need to be able to ad- adapt. But what I tell them is there are three growth areas in the law that are not going to change. They are technology, healthcare, and international work. If you can do something with any one of those three or better combine all three, you will be uh, employable. You will be uh, of value to your firm, your clients, or your law department or government government agency. So you need to be able to keep up with, with these things and to be able to adapt to them. And just as an example, when we start class on day one, I, it's a small seminar. It's about 12 students. Usually a third to half of them are from outside the U.S. And I see that they all have uh, MacBook Airs or iPads in front of them, usually 10 of the 12. And I say, all right, we're going to start the class talking about notions of privacy. Who uploads to iCloud? Well, pretty much everybody uploads to iCloud. It's the default unless you set it otherwise. And I said to them, okay, who's read the terms of use for iCloud? Terms of service. No hands go up because nobody reads those things. I write them. I know what's in them. And I say, okay, uh, let's look at what some of the terms of you say. And this semester, you're all going to be technology lawyers. And some of your exercises will be to write or review terms of use. Let's start now. So I show them a screenshot from iCloud that says anything you upload to the service, we may share, distribute, copy, use to test our systems at our sole discretion. And they all start looking at each other. Oh, we didn't, we didn't know that. And I said, okay, do you remember when Jennifer Lawrence's pictures were shared when her, her iCloud account was hacked? She had no recourse because she had clicked, I agree, to that portion of the terms of use. This is something for you to think about when you go to work for a firm or a government agency or a law department and you have sensitive client information. If you're backing up to iCloud, question whether you have now breached attorney-client privilege because Apple is seeing what you're doing. Same thing with Google. Same thing with Yahoo. Okay? I shudder to think about the ripple effects of this breach for people who were using Yahoo as for sending sensitive client information. Now they get an idea that, wow, this is a class in law school that affects what I do every day. I'm going to listen. I mean, it strikes me that part of that, part of that is not just the legal aspect, but the business aspect. Yeah. I mean, how many, how many of the students before you bring this up, how many of them are interested or looking at the business of law? You know, the aspect of running the law firm like a business or their private practice like a business? Very few. Very few. It's not really taught in law school. Law professors who are the full-time law professors... The Times did a study on this a few years ago. Generally spend, have spent less than five years in practice before they go into full-time academia. Now, there are some that are not. There are some that have had full, lengthy, fulfilling, wonderful careers and then became uh, professors. President Obama was full-time at Chicago Law School, University of Chicago Law School, uh, before, I believe, before he ran for the Senate. So, but he had a 
wonderful, very uh, in, involved career before, before that. But by and large, the business of law, how you relate to clients, how you keep and attract clients is not taught. It's not taught. And frankly, a lot of law firms don't teach young associates really how to relate to clients either. One of the things that, that was valuable when uh, I was uh, the couple of the law firms I, I'd worked at was we were required to r- report to clients whenever something significant happened on a case. We had a right to them. Uh, if it were a deposition that affected the case, uh, a court conference, a mediation, a motion, what happened on, on a particular motion. And when I was mentoring students, and I was one of the people in charge of the mentoring program at my old firm, I would make sure that I read any report on a significant development written by a young associate before it went out. And sometimes I would read the report and have no idea what happened. No idea what happened. And I would call the associate in and I would put the page face down on my desk. I wouldn't mark it up with red pen like some of my partners did and just throw it back at them. I didn't think that was productive. So I'd put a face down on my desk and I'd say, what happened today that you wrote a this report about, and he or she would tell me. And I'd say, I, now I get, I get it, but I didn't get it from reading this. What happened between here, pointing to my head, and here, pointing to the page? You just told me beautifully what happened, but I can't follow it from the way you wrote. What you wrote didn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. I then explained to them that your clients, our clients, will judge you by how you write. You won't get a lot of face time with them in the first couple of years. They will judge you and form opinions about your competence and even about your personality based on how you write. So keeping business, getting new business, getting word of mouth referrals for business is largely determined by the client's impression of you, which in turn is determined by your written product. I mean, that seems like a a pretty critical skill. Are there any other skills that you see as critical for for young attorneys uh, starting out, especially if they're associates at, you know, larger firms, particular skills that they should really be focused on acquiring in order to build their career, in order to get that face time with clients and to be able to, you know, have a a successful practice? Well, I think they have to keep in mind what the client's interests are, and which means they have to have a skill that we don't see a lot of these days, which is listening. And I use listening in a very broad sense because it may not be an in-person or phone conversation. Listening meaning taking the time to consider any communication from the client. Do some research on what the client is doing. How Are they having a good quarter? Are they having a good year? What are their new products? What is their public face? How does what you're doing potentially have an effect on that public face? Think about it not and think outside yourself think about it in terms of what the client is doing, and then apply your analytical skills that you learned in law school with the open-mindedness to realize that these regulations, particularly in technology, may change soon. And then think about how you can apply what you do to the client's concerns and pain points. I mean, I think that brings us back to delivering value, right? I mean, I think listening is sort of the key to providing value understanding the landscape and then listening to your clients' needs and concerns within that landscape. Is that a fair uh, way to bring it back to the, the value proposition? Very much so. When it came to me in one particular event, 
a previous law firm at which I worked had a, a partnership retreat every year. And in this particular year, they did what they called a reverse seminar. They had general counsel from three of our biggest clients come in to talk to the partners about what they liked, what they didn't like, what they would like to see done better, where they think their business is going, and how they felt they would partner better with their law firms. And it was really an education. I was a trial lawyer at the time, and that was mostly what I did. And this was around 2004, 2005. And one of the general counsel said, you know, we appreciate the great trial results, but we need more. We need our lawyers to be business partners. We need you to know what our concerns are. You know what? We don't always want to take a verdict. We don't always want the win. Sometimes we just want the case to be over. We want we have a filing for the SEC. We're in merger talks. We can't devote the resources anymore to this particular case. I know you guys want the win. You know, it's good to have a notch on your belt. It's always good to have a victory. Feels good. Gets your adrenaline flowing, but it's not good for the business. You need to know, and we also need to know, and this was another critical point, that when we have a question, we can pick up the phone and call you, and you're not going to nickel and dime us on the billing. That if we have a question and it's going to take five minutes, you know, we can just say, hey, let me run this by you, and we're comfortable with that. We need you to be our business partners, not just our gladiators, not just our warriors. And I really took that to heart. It changed my entire approach. It really did. To, you know, there's a counseling and advisory role that's as critical as the litigation role, and in some businesses, even more so. A lot of what I do in employment law, for example, is counseling. Uh, People don't want to go to trial. They don't want to litigate uh, wrongful termination cases. They certainly don't want to litigate hostile workplace cases in front of a jury of people who are working. It's not something any company wants to be in that position to do. So a lot of what I'm, uh, what I ask them to do is before you take certain steps with employees, call me. You know, let me know what you're doing. Don't call me after it's happened and things have blown up. All right, I, it's it's nice to be able to lock the barn door before the horse escapes. Well, even though that brings up a whole bunch of things, I want to actually shift a little bit. Again, in our the background conversation we had, uh, you had talked about moving the law into harmony with technology. There's a whole lot of different things that law and tech are not in harmony in regards to. One is the pace of change. As we talked about earlier, tech moves very fast. Legal doesn't, generally. But I think, and then there's also these aspects in the legal market where things are becoming commoditized. Uh, you know, you can go online, you can get an app to do an NDA. Right. Uh, I mean, so a lot of these things that, you know, someone might have come into the firm to do that's very small, that might have led to a relationship and more business. Now they're not necessarily coming into the firm for that. Could you talk about, you know, what, what really comes to mind when you think about bringing tech and legal into harmony? I said before that the law is largely paper-based. Law schools teach discovery, the ferreting out of evidence for litigation almost exclusively on a paper basis these days. Uh, When I start the e-discovery chapters in my class, I ask the students who's discussed e-discovery in their civil procedure classes and almost no hands go up. And I say, did you discuss discovery at all? And they said, yeah, but nothing having to do with electronic discovery. Well, this is, to me analogous to teaching the law of transportation by discussing stagecoaches. 
right? 95% of all business documents are digital. If you're not talking about discovery of digital information, then you're not talking about discovery in 2016. You're just not because very little is paper, all right? The, there's, been, there's a series of cases on, on jurisdiction. Jurisdiction used to be based on where the physical object was or where the transaction took place and you could parse it to one place. This pen is sitting on my desk uh, on Lexington Avenue in New York City. But what if I'm dealing with a blog post or a tweet or a an, an email that has bounced around several different servers around the world or a website which is accessible from anywhere in the United States? What does that do to the concept of jurisdiction based on the thing? It turns it on its head. It turns it on its head. Now, there has been a slow evolution of cases. I've written about a couple of them, putting rules of reason around jurisdiction. This is where the law is evolving to keep track with things like like e-commerce. Justice Breyer commented on, commented on that in a landmark jurisdiction case called McIntyre against Nick Castro. And it comes up frequently because it raises the question of whose law is going to apply. So when I do a contract for a multinational company or even just a domestic company with regard to state law, I've got to put in the contract, this case, this matter will be governed by the law of this country or this state. And it, it is critical. Uh, Robert Frost once said that good fences make good neighbors. That's kind of where good contract drafting with consideration of the technological issues involved in the transaction come, come into play. I just finished a deal closing involving sale of a, a software company, and it took weeks to negotiate all the all the the assignments of the intellectual property, the limitations of liability, the indemnifications, uh, and the security and privacy uh, requirements that each side was going to meet, and the insurance in the event they weren't met. You have to think about these things. It's almost like three dimensional chess, right? And to mix metaphors, it's a little bit of a Tower of Babel when you think about all of the different jurisdictions involved. When I do a privacy policy for a website, for example, I have to think about what countries and states are going to be involved. There are California provisions for every website. There are European Union provisions uh, for uh, what information you're, you're gathering. And there are consequences to all these things. You're skating to where the puck will be. Right. Where may the problems be? Where are the regulations going? That was not something we did really before technology became such a big part of the practice of law. And the other thing, too, in this that's critical to mention is in 2012, the American Bar Association passed a model rule that affected the rule on competent representation. Rule one, and it's rule one for a reason says that each lawyer is charged with the responsibility of delivering competence and zealous representation. A comment was added in 2012 that said competency includes being cognizant of and knowledgeable about technology that affects your client or the matter in which you are involved. So it was no longer, if it ever was, appropriate to say, you know, judge, I just don't understand this computer stuff. 
um, and even the judges now, some of whom were famously tech-phobic, have now had to move into understanding this. But the other critical point to keeping law in harmony with technology for lawyers, and law students in particular, is education. You can't assume the judge knows your technology or the arbitrator or the regulator or even your senior partner knows the technology as well as you do. Uh, A magistrate judge in Brooklyn, uh, in case I was involved in especially discovery counsel, said to primary counsel in the case, Counselor, I have to ask you to stop for a second. You are one one hundred and fiftieth of my docket. I cannot possibly know the substance of your case as well as you do, let alone the underlying technology. If you don't slow down and explain it to me, there's no chance I'm going to rule your way. But you have to do that with clients, too. You have to explain the law to the client, the regulations that affect them, how their business intersects with that law and requirement, and it takes time. It is an educational process. You must have your communication skills really sharpened in order to be able to do that effectively. Now, I want to just focus this a little bit uh, specifically to risks and opportunities for the firm itself. Mm-hmm. So all of, a lot of that was, you know, what are the risks and opportunities for clients? Um, and what is, requ- you know, how well do you have to understand it in order to represent your clients? How well do you have to understand these things to run the business of the firm? and to market the firm's services. Well, we touched on this a little bit earlier when we said, when I said that banks and hospital systems, and particularly academic medical centers, audit their law firms for cybersecurity and privacy. And that includes making sure that the firm's workforce has been trained in these particular areas. And there are legal requirements under HIPAA for those law firms that work with patient inform- patient identifiable information to be trained on the security and some of the privacy aspects. Uh, the firms have to have um, good cybersecurity because of two, uh, a couple of reasons. There are ethical, legal, and business reasons for that. We touched on the business reasons earlier. If you have a breach of really sensitive client information, the odds of you keeping that client go down dramatically. The odds of you getting new business, if uh, this is a well-publicized breach, are very, very low. There are legal requirements. The SEC has provisions for firms who are working with publicly traded companies to be considered as though they're practicing before the commission for when they write opinion statements. New York's Department of Financial Services uh, just issued regulations that will take effect the beginning of November in which um, insurance companies and banks and uh, others regulated under the DFS have an obligation to vet their third parties. And they specifically mention accountants and lawyers for cybersecurity, and then they list multiple criteria. Hospitals have been doing that for years. That's been a HIPAA requirement for a very long time. So that's the legal component to it. The ethical component to it is that your lawyers are under an obligation to maintain client confidences. If you are sloppy on your cybersecurity or you haven't kept up with it and and you lose client information, you're possibly vulnerable to a disciplinary action for failure to meet those ethical requirements. And we're talking mainly about, you know, the business environment here, but this is true even in more consumer-facing law as well, correct? I mean, even in something like juror selection now, 
can go into potential jurors' social media postings. Yeah, and, and as you pointed out earlier, I've written on that. Um, this is relatively new, and the post that I wrote on this asked the question, is it ethical to look at the jurors, so potential jurors' uh, social media accounts and jury selection? Is, and then I posed the second question, is it ethical not to? Because is that is not doing it consistent with your duty for zealous and comprehensive rep- competent representation? On the other hand, is that perhaps a step too far? Uh, if the jurors were told initially that their Facebook walls, that um, their public-facing social media would be fair game for these lawyers— how would they react to it? Uh, most of them won't know and won't be told. But again, this is part of the intersection of technology and law. When I was trying cases, um, I had uh, my associates and paralegals do extensive internet research on uh, the experts who were going to testify, expert witnesses for the other side. And for the parties, uh, as well. I remember telling one client who had written a book that had some provision, had some chapters in it that if anybody knew about it could come back to hurt him because it was contrary to the position he was going to take at trial, that uh, it would be easy enough to do a Google search, find his name, get the book, and then cross-examine him. And I knew this because I've done it. I've done it with experts from the other side. You know, people publish regularly. You have to be prepared to defend what you say or have the contradictions raised in a public forum. In what sense is this tech savvy or knowing the market being savvy in the tech world and bringing it into harmony with your practice? To what what extent is that a business advantage or is that just the new normal and that's the baseline? It's both. It's both. When we market to technology companies, uh, we have to market based on our experience in technology. And I don't mean having computer science degrees, although one of my associates does. Um, I don't. My science degree is political science. But I've been involved in this long enough that I, I think I know a few, a few things. But we And we explain that not only do we know the laws pertaining to the technology that might be involved, uh, we understand how it can play out in a in various forums, including the public forum. You know, we, we one of our clients I remember had a um, was very concerned about European uh, privacy and data protection law, and the client had a website, and the client was a very well-known personality, and they had a provision in the, in the developers had a provision in the website: we will not sell outside the United States. And I called the client up and I said, "Did I read that right?" She said, yeah, we really don't want to get involved with this EU data protection stuff. And I said, so if you get an order for 50,000 units from Toronto, you're going to turn it down? Or from London, you're going to turn that one down too? Uh, What about Paris? You don't want to be a a market maker in Paris? Because this was an apparel company. It didn't take much longer before they realized, okay, what do we need to do? And that was because we had the knowledge that, yes, there are strict data protection and privacy rules in Europe, 
but there's also a heck of a lot of business to be obtained from Europe, and the two things are not exclusive. We can make it work as long as we put in the appropriate protections, and this in turn will increase your business. This is what clients want to hear from their lawyers. They want to hear that you're business sensitive. Well, with that, I wanted to to close with one or two key skills that, that young attorneys or, or really any attorney needs to have in terms of being a value add for their clients in this legal environment that is so saturated by these, these tech and cybersecurity issues? They need to be able to write well. I think that's number one. And when I say write well, I mean be able to write in a way that explains things clearly, has a beginning, a middle, and an end, so it's understandable, is interesting, so the client will want to read it, and explains clearly what the position of the client is, where the exposures and issues may be, and critically, what to do about them. Um, Harry Truman once famously said, I, I'm t- I don't want any more three-handed economists. On the one hand, on the other hand, on the third hand, I want people to take a position. I want someone to take a stand. And I've heard this from general counsel too. They want their lawyers to be able to take a stand. So being firm in your convictions, being confident in your convictions is critical. Writing is critical. I think having a baseline understanding of technology is going to more and more be a job requirement. Now, when I taught my class at Hofstra before I moved it to Fordham, I suggested to the academic dean that he put together a certificate program in uh, electronic information compliance and that one of the courses in there be a, an, an undergraduate course in computer science, pass-fail, so that at least they would get a, the students would get baseline understanding. Now, I've said this in another way to engineering students. I've told computer engineering students that they will be extremely valuable if they take a writing and literature class so that they can convey themselves well. The metaphor I use in this is Denzel Washington in uh, the movie Philadelphia. Uh, When Tom Hanks is trying to explain the medicine behind uh, AIDS, which at the time was not well known at the time when the movie is set, and Denzel Washington stops him and says, I'm not getting this. you got to explain it to me like I'm a six-year-old. And that theme repeats itself throughout the movie. And that's what I tell associates and students. You need to have explanatory and educational skills. Don't assume people know everything you know. Don't speak in jargon. Explain it like you're talking to a six-year-old. Make sure your point is understood. When I used to prep witnesses for depositions on a regular basis, multiple times a month, I would say to them, if you don't understand the question the lawyer asks you, it's not your fault. It means it's a lousy question. The lawyer's job is to communicate. Tell him or her she's not doing her job. Say it nicely, but say, I'm sorry, I just didn't understand the question. Make sure you make yourself understood to your clients and anyone to whom you're speaking. So it's analytical skills, expository skills, and writing. Ken, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Legal Marketing Studio podcast and being so generous in sharing your experience and your perspective on on these issues. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
Well, the Legal Marketing Studio is a production of Picture More Business, a full-service corporate photography studio focused on the legal industry, based in Brooklyn, New York, and working with clients nationally. If your firm is updating its website, hiring new attorneys, or revamping its brand and marketing materials, give us a call. We'd love to explore collaborative opportunities. More information can be found at picturemorebusiness.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe. The Legal Marketing Studio can be found on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Extended content, including photographs and links, can be found on our website, legalmarketing.studio. Note that there's no .com there. It is just legalmarketing.studio. Would you like to appear on the Legal Marketing Studio or know someone who might? Please send an email to producer at legalmarketing.studio or reach out via the contact page on our website, legalmarketing.studio. That's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. 